0: Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase.
2: Welcome to Wood Talk. Now, here are three guys who think true grit starts at 220. Mark, Shannon, and Mad. It's show number 465 for March 18th, 2020. On today's show, we are answering your questions. It's all about Q&A today. Uh, before we get to that, I want to let you know that Wood Talk is brought to you by Rockler. Rockler has been helping customers create with confidence for 65 years. Head over to rockler.com to check out their power-up sale, which includes power tools and all of the accessories that you need for your shop. The sale runs through April 2nd, so don't miss it.
1: And if you want to help support the show, you can do so by going to patreon.com woodtalk and signing up to be a patron of of the show. This week, we'd like to thank John Fulmer, James Lemon, Sebastian Margalio, Aaron Pauly, Terrence Killian, Matt Desibero, Red Point Woodworks, <laughs> Paul Dovoditis, Kyle Paulson, Robert Randall, John Kleist, Alec <laughs> <Nick> Manhoney, <laughs> Joe Clever. Leon Oh oh boy (laughs) Holzinga Preston Norris Jack Wilson And the Wood Victor (laughs) (laughs) I think the best
2: part of this Is that every one of these names Ends with a question mark (laughs) 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 Joe Clemmer. It's all
1: about the inflection mark Preston Norris
2: Okay That's pretty good uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, the Patreon thing is really good. You guys are, are helping us out. That's uh, that's uh, very encouraging to us, and the numbers keep going up. Lots of extra patrons there, so we uh, appreciate it. And the least we can do is read you. We could uh, have Matt screw up your name.
1: Yeah, all I can do for you. All I can do for you. We, <laughs> we, greatly, appreciate, yeah. for you.
0: we greatly appreciate <laughs> the effort they put into making up those last names just to throw Matt off. Because some of those, I think those are made up. Suspicious,
2: yeah. Some are suspicious. <laughs> you guys have some funny names.
0: <clears throat> Although. De barbo sounds fun. De barbio? De barbio. De barbo. Yeah. Sounds like de you bo- need some Zatarain spice on that. Mm, mm. Yeah, baby. All right. Well, <laughs> <laughs> let's get
2: to uh, it. It's going to be a show about Creole cooking. I'm into it. I'm into it. <laughs> That's where we're at right now. Yeah, I think we're so. Right. I think so. Screw this woodworking thing. We got better things to talk about. All right, so let's get into what's on the bench. It's been a little while. I am working on a set of nesting tables. Uh, It's taking longer than it should because I keep getting distracted by different
1: things. Um, (laughs) It's not like everything, though. Kind of, kind of. Like doesn't like. I can't think of one thing I've done lately that has taken exactly as long as I thought it would. Yeah,
2: I mean, you would think by now you'd have a better sense of of that sort of thing. But you're right. I always, (laughs) I always underestimate (laughs) how long things are going to take. But you know what? I don't have all the the trips that I was going to have on my calendar just with the whole. You know, what's going on with the uh, coronavirus thing. Travel is being sort of curtailed. So I'm actually going to find myself with a little more time um, than I originally expected this time of year. So I guess, I mean, it's not good, but in one way, it's good. (laughs) I I don't want to say good in the same sentence as, you know, what's going on right now. (laughs) <clears throat> you know, it could be uh, misunderstood. So anyway, working on the nesting tables, uh, pulled out the hollow chisel mortiser, one of Matt's favorite tools. I saw that. I was so proud of you. Well, and everyone's going, you know, how come you don't just use the domino? You know, that, uh, yeah. that, that classic <laughs> woodworker retort as of 2019. Uh. <laughs> and uh, so I'm like, well, first of all, one of the reasons is uh, the smallest pieces that I'm working with are half inch by half inch. And they will end up with a quarter inch by quarter inch tenon, which means I got to make a quarter inch by quarter inch mortise. And good luck doing that with a domino. So um, the Hollich's Mortiser is just a great, cool. great solution
1: for that. I think you found a use case where it uh, actually wins. Yeah, I mean, the <laughs> I domino know, right? can
2: kind of be an answer <laughs> almost across the board, right? I mean, most things you could be like, yeah, the domino can certainly pull that off. But there are points where it becomes a limitation and and you cannot use it for that.
0: So, yeah, I think that's just called a drill bit quarter inch by quarter inch. Mortise. Yeah, maybe it is. Yeah, <laughs> But, but even like if I were to do that with hand tools and like drill that out, chopping out those corners would suck. Yeah. Cause it's just oh, so yeah. tiny. I mean, there's no space to actually lever anything out of the way. So yep. yeah, that, I think that the hollow chosen mortiser might be the only way to go at that point.
2: Yeah. And I've got a couple other mortises that are half inch by quarter inch, you know, so it's still, even that is a little bit bigger, but you're still not going to be able to pull that off with a domino. It just isn't going to work. Uh, so the other thing going on, we're gearing up for the CNC basics course that we're going to be doing in the guild. Uh got a gentleman coming out uh, tomorrow, actually, and I plan to put him into a chamber and gas him <laughs> to make sure that any anything that might be on his body is completely eliminated. And then we'll uh, we'll rub elbows. Then I'll go in and take a shower and then we'll come back into the shop and uh, see if we can't film some stuff about CNC. <laughs>
0: What, so what I'm curious thing. about is even before we started recording, Mark was talking about the CNC guys coming to the visit yeah. in the show notes. It says gearing up for the CNC guys visit. I'm wondering, do we know the name of the CNC guy? I don't know his name? I don't Or know. is that his name? Is his just, name CNC guy? CNC I mean, guy.
2: His name is CNC guy Smith.
0: I mean, the, here's, here's his career counselor. Didn't have a hard job when he walked in. <laughs> time <laughs> my name is CNC guy. I think you're destined for a job in the CNC work. Oh, yeah.
2: okay. I'm actually oh. going to have to remember his name. His name's Adam. How about that?
0: It's kind of where I was getting, I was just wondering if maybe you'd forgotten who was coming and it was just, he's now the CNC guy. Cause. Well, part, part of my brain is because the guy approached me and he's not someone that
2: anyone knows necessarily. He's not out there making videos. He, he's not. So your concerns
0: about the virus are the least of your concerns. Yeah.
2: Guy? He's just a total stranger.
0: He has candy in a van. I mean, yeah. what more do you need?
2: Yeah. He was. He, he offered me a good piece of candy. I can't, I can't resist. Uh, but no, he approached me. It's someone who I've had email contact with in the past. He's watched our stuff and saw what I was doing with the CNC and made me an offer. And I looked at his you know, resume, if you will, and listened to some sample stuff. And he doesn't actually produce any kind of content. And I'm like, boom, that's the kind of person I want. I I, I actually want that type of instructor in the guild. <laughs> if, if We don't want a bunch of mats in the guild. Boom. You know what I'm talking about? So only room for one, (laughs) it's only room for one of those. Uh, so yeah, his, his name is Adam. He's a really nice guy. Certainly knows his stuff and it's going to be a great like crash course, beginners course on uh, getting into CNC. So that'll be happening all next week. I'll be very, uh, my back will be sore from holding that stupid camera all day (laughs) because I know (laughs) tripods exist, but, uh, I like to go mobile, like to be mobile when I film other people. It, It just makes a better presentation. So other than that, uh, you know, preparing for the kids to be home for a few weeks and still working and hope, hopefully not having too much interruption to the schedule, but it's a whole thing, man. Like these kids are on, uh, well, Ava's too young. She's in pre-K, uh, but with Mateo home, it's a whole school thing and they're doing like remote learning. So now we're not exactly homeschooling them, but we have to have a space for him to kind of crack open his laptop and, uh, go to these (laughs) sessions that they're having,
1: uh, I love it. That's like a college level kind of like statement. I got someone to crack open my laptop. I know. You know hanging out in the library. And he's
2: eight years old. So I'm, I'm about to make
1: him some, uh, a couple of
2: cappuccinos work, so he can I got to work late. on my
1: term paper, you know.
2: <laughs> yeah. He's going to pull a couple of uh, overnights, you know, like. Oh, you do.
1: I got to pull an all-nighter. All-nighters. His paper. <laughs> Oh, uh, I got that group project I'm working on. Now one guy's not doing anything that plenty of his own weight. Right. Dude, let, me,
2: uh, let me tell you, this is a little bit of a tangent here. I'm amazed at what they're doing with, with kids these days. So he's got a Chromebook. He's eight years old and he showed me a ebook that he's been working on. And it is a really nice little presentation kind of looks like a PowerPoint. And I was like, so how are you getting these images in here? Like, I want to see the interface that they're using. And it's not even dumbed down really in any way. He goes, he's like, oh, I just go up to here to uh, edit and insert. And then I go to Google image search. I search for the image and then he's just drag and dropping and resizing images like he's literally doing a PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> and I'm like, this is amazing. You know, like he's, he's eight <laughs> years old. I can't believe he's doing this. And so of course my mind is like, how soon do you think he'll be able to do plans for me?
1: Yeah. <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> like if we can put this to use, this is going to be really, really good. You need to have all like right. a, a summer camp. Send Mateo to John Funk. Yeah. Just, you know. Yeah. Just, yeah. Intern with John right Funk. There. That would just be good. Stand, just stand there and look over his shoulder for a little <laughs> yeah. while. So
2: it's well, pretty if, amazing. If it,
0: if it makes you guys feel any better, um, from my perspective, I'm seeing this from the teacher's perspective. Because Heather's yeah. school is also, well, they're on spring break next week. But they are closed for three weeks right now after that. Mm-hmm. And they had a whole like all faculty meeting on Friday. To basically discuss how are we going to do this? Like, what the heck are we going they're to do? They are half a step ahead of the students themselves, trying to figure out how to do this distance learning thing. And my wife is a music teacher. How do you do choir <laughs> over the internet? Yeah, that's a little tricky, huh? <laughs> so they're they're trying to prepare know. for like spring concerts and things, and she's just like, "This is Fruit just not going to work. This is yeah. not going to work." <laughs> you
2: guys are a little pitchy.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh man, yeah. You
2: that's, sound like a robot. That is, <laughs> that is tricky. Let me again. So we're so off on a tangent. Is she um still being paid
0: through this process? Oh yeah, yeah. That's good. I good, mean, good, good. I mean, it's there's no real. I mean, technically, they've been set up for distance learning. They have an online learning management system. It's always been there. They've been encouraging teachers for like the last five years to like use it to yeah. send uh, um, multimedia type uh, assignments and things like that. So it's mm-hmm. always kind of been there in the background, but. Suddenly, like when you're told, okay, now you, you got to use it, you know, well, kids still have grades. They still have tests. You know, you still have to prepare your students for the the grade part of schooling. So they got to do something. Oh yeah. man, that's amazing. It's, it's all nuts. Nobody really has any idea what's going on. I'm waiting for, um, like the universities that are saying this going to distance learning. You notice how no one is talking about like refunding any tuition.
2: Yeah. Right.
0: <laughs> No. Or my gym, my gym closed, you know? And, and I'm like, so getting money back? Like nobody's talking about this. Like, <laughs> I don't know about yeah, you, but if I'm sending my kid to Duke university and suddenly they're be, they're cracking open their laptop to take their class from, you know, instead of going to the university, I expect a little bit of a refund. Yeah. It's, it's a really tough situation
2: though. Um, it's a, it, like, there are no winners in this whole, Thing. Well, except for toilet paper manufacturers, but outside, <laughs> outside of them, there are no winners and it's, it's tough to figure out what is the right thing to do in these situations.
0: Speaking of which, that reminds me of an old wood talk episode. I think the title was artisanal toilet paper. Yeah. Oh yes. We to. Well, back you know, that they,
2: uh, I've seen that in some of our Facebook groups about maybe six or seven times about some kind of like uh toilet paper made from uh, wood shavings that is just relevant right now. So it's getting shared a lot. <laughs> Yeah. All right, let's talk about woodworking, you guys. Uh, Matt,
1: <laughs> what's going on in your shop? I uh I just finished up the garden bench. So I got that uh I did all pre-finishing on that. I glued it up went uh smoothly, which yeah. is good cuz there's a lot of pieces and a lot of like things that have to come together in that one. Mm-hmm. Luckily it uh went very smoothly. It's uh it's sitting in the shop because I haven't taken it outside yet so I'm like, oh, I got to do the wrap up and take the pictures of it and whatever. Mm-hmm. We have like an early spring here in Minnesota and like, it's not pretty. Like if I put it outside, like, oh, cool. Matt put this nice bench in some mud.
2: Oh, OK. So I, I was wondering what the early spring thing meant. So it's wet. It's just everything's everything's melting?
1: everything's wet. The snow is gone. So like gotcha. Everything that was like in the snow is now on the lawn. The grass is all matted down and brown. <laughs> OK. And you know it's muddy. Yeah, so it was like no good place to take pictures of this thing. <laughs> sure. So so uh, yeah.
2: <laughs> can, can you recap the finish? I've been curious to hear about your finish exploration and like the old, oh yeah wood,
1: with the thermal thermally modified wood and all that stuff. I always forget how like like when we did the last show when we talked about last our, time. our schedule's wacky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the thermally modified ash. When I looked up the kind of like the information on it from like the deck manufacturers that are selling stuff as decking, a lot of them just recommend a simple teak oil for the finish, mostly just to give it some UV resistance and then just to kind of bring out the color in the wood Mm -hmm. so it doesn't look as boring. So I went with uh, a teak oil and I bought uh, four, I think four different kinds, four different varieties, and I did samples on all four of them to kind of pick which one I like the best. Um, I went with the Starbright teak oil which gave it uh, the ones I had the best kind of finish and the best color um, out of all of them. I tried the um, I tried the Minwax, like the Hellsman or Hells, whatever that, that is, their outdoor brand thing from Minwax. Mm-hmm. Um, that one's like basically like... Polyurethane? Uh, well, no, it's basically like olive oil. It has that same viscosity where it's like super thick, so it's really hard to apply... So is is it Helmsman? As well?
2: Helmsman marine varnish stuff that Helmsman spar varnish or teak. Oil. Oh it's okay, teak oil. gotcha. Teak yep. oil.
1: Yep. Yeah, so that was like the most like if you think about like oil, it like that was like, oh, this is oil. Yeah. So it was difficult to apply. It was difficult to actually I didn't see it penetrating as well as the others. So I kind of set that one aside. Okay. Uh the toll boat, I got that one as well. That one has what looks to me like a ridiculous amount of um, solids in it. Okay. Like, like it's orange. Wow. It turns everything orange. And it's, so,
2: they have a teak oil. It's actually called teak oil.
1: Yep. It's called teak oil. Okay. It's uh very low viscosity. So I like that. That means bottom. anything. At the, exactly. that's
2: right. <laughs> just the, the letters on the front of the can is all that is. I mean, <laughs> they
0: might as well just put that in quotes. <laughs> you know?
1: And that's why I want to do this. I'm like, well, teak oil is like this like umbrella term for like, who knows what kind of stuff. Yeah. So that was uh, part of my motivation to try a bunch of different things. Uh, But the, 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 uh, the total boat was just made the wood orange because of the solids. (laughs) Okay. So I'm assuming it has the best UV resistance, but at the cost of turning wood orange. Sure. (laughs) There was that. And then the, uh, I tried the the Southern Wells stuff. That was Mm -hmm. a, technically that was a polymerized uh, tongue oil. So it wasn't technically a teak oil, but who cares? Uh, that was quite nice. It was a little bit waxy on the surface, though, so I wasn't mm. super sure about my, my feeling on that. And then the Starbrite was um, low viscosity. Or not low viscosity. Um, yeah, low Wait. oh, second. Viscosity always throws me off. Uh, High viscosity? No, low. Low wait. is loose. Loose. Low viscosity. There we go. Okay. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> so that one was low viscosity. It was kind of like water. Runny. Yeah, runny. You're running so it was a very watery real juicy kind of a uh, thing, so that it penetrated really well, it was absorbed really readily, and it didn't turn my wood orange, so I went with that, and it left like a fairly nice matte finish without a lot of sheen and it didn't have any kind of surface kind of build on it, mm-hmm. so I figured for uh future applications it would be the easiest to maintain okay, so i went uh, I went with that nice and it was uh the cheapest or one of the cheaper ones too it was like I think that one was twenty dollars I think cool. Yeah, the minimum exponent was 12 and then the total boat and the starboard was like $20, and then the southern wells was like 40 something for it, all for a quart. Right.
2: Yeah, that so. was pricey, pricey stuff.
1: That's nice, though. I think I would, I'm going to actually use that on some, like, probably indoor projects. Sure, yeah. Or, like, not? other ones. It, it did go on really nicely. Mm-hmm. I give them that. It really ni- went on nicely. It wasn't, uh, didn't really have any much odor to it. It was nice. It was quite pleasant. It was a pleasant experience.
2: That's what I'm after these days. More pleasant you know, pleasant finishes. If it starts to hurt my nose, I'm like, hey, I, I could do yeah. better than this. Yeah, I should be wearing a respirator. <laughs> <Right>. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. All right. That sounds cool, man. So what about what's the deal with the trailer? It's kind of all I ever see on your feet anymore is you, oh, yeah, you smacking smacking smack metal with a sledgehammer. <laughs> right. It's like your new thing.
1: <laughs> I you know, I gotta feel tough every now now and again, you know?
2: Well, actually the one you were knocking something off of the back of the trailer and the first hit. I don't, like if you listen really closely, you're like, oh, <laughs> like
1: <laughs> You had this audible well, reaction to <laughs> to the. <feeling>. Well, here's <laughs> the thing with that is like I cu- I, ha- I had previously I cut all the welds, uh, so I was just like, "Oh, this would be like this like dramatic like I'll smack it real hard, I'll like fly off." Yeah. So all the welds are cut already, or like almost all the way cut. And I go to hit it and nothing happens. <laughs> it was a surprise. Like, Ooh. Ooh. Well, crap! I guess I got to <laughs> hit it harder and repeatedly. <laughs> yeah, that was great. <laughs> Well, apparently my walls are not too bad uh like the trailer's almost done i got the arch finished up uh yesterday and i'm just gonna go through and do a, lo- a few of the last little things like uh tie down things and uh stabilizing jacks and then that thing should be good to go cool man we're uh finishing or whatever yeah it's finish a finish prep it's a beast yeah we'll pick up some logs sweet
2: can never get enough you're gonna, of watching you pick up logs
0: you're gonna put a racing stripe on it at least during the finish A finishing. couple of them.
1: Beautiful.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Gotta have the raising <laughs> stripe. <laughs> All right. Well, I have just started a new set of built-ins. I think this is probably going to be my fourth or fifth set of built-ins, but they aren't in my house. So this is a new experience for me. Oh, um, interesting. You well, know, and it's always been, you know, you go, you capture some initial measurements of the size, and then I'll kind of... um generally build like plywood carcasses, individual carcasses, and then attach them, screw them all together. So it's a very modular type thing, but it's always like back and forth to the space, kind of <laughs> grabbing dimensions and relatively sizing things based upon the space I have to fit it in. Can't do that because this is for yeah. my sister-in-law and she is in upstate New York. So it's not like <laughs> it's, I can run down the street, yeah. capture the measurements. It's so no I, checking I things. went and got as like every measurement i can think of <laughs> like i i probably know the diameter of the drain pipe out of the guest bathroom toilet or something <laughs> i mean it's just like well let's measure that just to be sure and I, now i'm like actually just coming up with the design and getting her approval on like the number of shelves and she wants it it's more of like a built-in entertainment center so exactly where the tv space is going to be so it's more of functional and aesthetics but i i have to like fit it into the space so that ideally I'm going to build these carcasses, these individual kind of modular pieces, carry them up in the back of my um, my SUV and then magically fit them all into the space, mm-hmm. you know, and I do have to cut the trim work and things ahead of time, but I'm purposely going to leave, you know, the, uh, the rails longer so that I can fit that and everything on site, just like you would, you know, putting up molding or whatever. So that part should go, go okay. But I'm a little nervous about the other thing. And and it occurs to me, I guess that's like professional contractors who build built-ins. This is probably what they do, right? I mean, capture a bunch of dimensions, go back to the shop, build the cases, and then come back and figure it out. But yeah, I've just never actually done that. I've always been able to just walk into the other room and go, well, that fit, you know, kind of hold it up and mark some pencil marks based upon where it is in relation to the wall and all that stuff. So Mm -hmm. This would be an interesting experience.
2: I did a few of those back in Arizona when I was not doing Wood Whisper stuff and trying to pretend to be like a custom furniture maker. And right. uh, it, it was so stressful. I mean, I would take story sticks upon story sticks and just anything <laughs> I could like measurements aren't good enough, right? Like to know right. the space of this, I'm like, oh, I could write that number down or I could grab a long strip of quarter inch ply and put little marks and then take the numbers and write like it was like everything was in triplicate. Uh, just to make sure that I didn't screw this thing up. And that that's, it it is tricky business. I've got a lot of respect for people who do built-ins like as their primary thing. And like, there's so many tricks of the trade when it comes to built-ins that I don't know, you know, and I would try to figure it out. And it was uh, definitely a challenge. One of the most challenging woodworking things Mm -hmm. that I've ever done.
0: Well, I think the, the rule of thumb is I'm just undersizing everything, knowing that trim work and scribing to the wall will fix anything. Um, And the good news is, is (laughs) The design so far that we've decided on is it's not going to go floor to ceiling. Uh, It's going to stop just below the ceiling. So technically, I won't have to scribe that top line. And we're going to recess like rope lighting in there to get that little kind of ambient light effect and Mm -hmm. with a a crown around the top. So at least I've got that one dimension where I know it, it, it shouldn't fit. And it yeah. shouldn't fit by a long way, it by mean- like a foot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so I've got—I know I've at least got a foot above the thing to kind of squeeze things into. Plus, there's also the other thing because the very first time I built built-in book se- um, bookcases was, ooh, probably when I bought the house that I'm living in now, and I forgot about that whole um, Pythagorean theorem thing <laughs> the, the, uh, diagonal. <laughs> Yes. Or you then try to stand that bookcase up and it bumps into the ceiling and you're like, but I measured it. You're like, no. (laughs) A squared plus B squared. Well, C squared is longer, though. So you're like, dang it. Yikes. Yeah. So at least I know in this instance it is specifically going to be a foot shorter than the ceiling. So I can actually build it to Mm. the dimension and not have to worry about standing the thing up. That's good. Because that I wish I could say that was the last time that I ran into that problem, but I did the same thing with a uh, uh, freestanding cabinet as well, which was really stupid of me. So that is the worst, worst, worst <laughs> time to find out that you screwed something up.
2: <laughs> all right. So we're going to get into our main stuff today, but it's all Q and a, and Q and a is a good thing. we we actually have a ton of questions from you guys. And I, I do want to say ahead of time that if you email us and we don't get the question on the show, understand it's really difficult for us to narrow that list down to just the few that we could put on the show, but we do appreciate it. And please keep sending those questions in. Um, so, you know, all about questions, you know, who else knows a thing or two about answering questions? You guys? No, neither one of you. know. <laughs> I, th- I mean, at this point you would think you would know, but anyway, Rockler. I think I'd be able to read the notes. It's Rockler. Huh? <gasps> Yeah, I thought that'd be a surprise. Uh, so, <laughs> if someone is, sta- <laughs> I gotta read this thing. Stop if someone is starting a big project and needs a little bit of help with their first steps, Rockler offers expert advice in their retail stores and on their website. The support team can be reached via phone, email, or live chat. The team answers questions about Rockler products, but is also happy to provide woodworking advice and answer other woodworking questions. You can find all that contact info at rockler.com expert advice. You can also go to rockler.com and click expert advice at the top left hand corner. Thanks for sponsoring the show, Rockler. And By the way, if you go to that page, the expert advice page, you might see some familiar faces on one of those little uh, square thingies in the center of the page. I'm not, you should just go there and check it out because it makes me giggle every time I see it. So (laughs) it's good stuff. (laughs) So yeah, thank you for supporting the show Rockler. We really appreciate it. And uh, I think we can get into all of these voicemail emails, actually only one voicemail today. And uh, it's really just a comment. And then we will get to your email questions.
3: Hey guys, it's Ray here from South Africa. As a woodworker who runs a hand tool podcast, one that doubles its play count when both my mother and my wife listen to an episode. I was curious as to what kind of influencer I was. I thought you might like to know that the smallest scale known to scientists is called Planck length. I thought it was appropriate that we call woodworkers who've got a channel that are not even known to their immediate family as Planck influencers from here on out. Anyway, the reason I called was to share some thoughts on why woodworking books are still in fashion. I think that one of the things that books allow you to do is to stop and contemplate what you're reading. It's important when you're reading a technique book, like yours, Mark, for example, but even more so when you're working through a design book or looking for inspiration for the next project. Another reason I think books are still thriving is because of the different formats. I've read a Kindle book before a meeting when I had a quick gap at work and occasionally in a particularly boring presentation. It's a bit more intrusive and, well, generally frowned upon when you start watching videos. Likewise, on a commute, an audiobook allows you to listen to woodworking and steer the car at the same time. Again, probably not the best time for YouTube. And like many of your listeners, I spend a lot of my daytime behind a screen. Often when I get home, a book is a way to switch off that visual media just can't match. Just thought I'd share those thoughts with you and thank you for a great show. Go Rockler.
2: Awesome, thank you for that, Ray. How about that accent? Good job with the accent, Ray.
0: Yep. You know, you're going to get played on the show with an accent. Oh,
2: it's it's pretty much automatic. (laughs) All it takes. Yeah. Especially if it's a fake accent, those are even more entertaining. Um, But Ray, uh, we were, I was talking about this before the show. Like I have to look this up now. I'm super curious about how how South Africa was settled and how it wound up with that specific (laughs) accent that has a little bit of an Australian, (laughs) New Zealand kind of thing going on there. But but still a little bit different. I I absolutely love that accent. So uh, I would listen to his show. I would make his uh, yeah. listenership rise to three if he did one.
0: Well, <laughs> and if anyone is curious, Ray uh, Ray's show is Hand Tool Book Review. So, handtoolbookreview.com. Why didn't he say Ray that? Ray is also a proud member. He didn't. He's just a member of the Hand Tool <laughs> School, and I know oh, Ray. So, you know who he is. All
2: right, good. Yeah, good, good. <clears throat> and
0: I am one of those listeners. So, there is more than just your, your mother and your wife listening. It's me, too. Well, now <laughs> let's give him a few more. I mean, there guys go. go out there,
2: search in your podcast uh, apps and look for hand tool book review and listen to Ooh. more. I mean, just to hear his voice, I would, I would download <laughs> right? that and listen. It's so And surreal. personally,
0: I think that we should follow Ray's advice and, and end every show with just a rousing go Rockler. Go Rockler. Yeah, <laughs> that's
2: pretty good. I think they'd appreciate Everybody it. Everybody hands
0: in the middle. Go <laughs> Rockler. <laughs> All
2: right. So let's get to some of our emails here. First one I have is from Eddie. He says, "Any love for Typebond Extend 2? You all mentioned using Hide Glue because it gives you more assembly time than a typical Typebond 3. However, Typebond Extend 2 has the longest open time of all three, based on their website specs. Typebond Extend 2 and Type versus Typebond Hide Glue. Obviously, Hide Glue or Typebond 3 have specific benefits, but regarding assembly time, I'm wondering why Extend doesn't get any love. Rarely, rarely, Rarely hear about it online or on podcasts." Uh, I've got some extend. I've used them throughout the years. I think for I can just answer for me personally. The reason I typically don't reach for those is it's there's a lot of water in there. So if you have these joints sitting there with a very loose and that would be Matt. That's a low viscosity liquid <laughs> um, sitting thank on the you. thank you <laughs> sitting on the surface. A lot of that water is absorbing into the joints. So unlike a hide glue or epoxy, uh, you put that stuff on the joint and it does take you a long time to get it together and your joints fit kind of tight. You may have a hard time getting those joints together. So for that's one reason, it's not usually my favorite, uh, go to the other reason is I've been living in dry, very, very dry environments for uh, quite a few years now from Arizona to uh, Denver. And water-based glues tack up and dry a lot faster than the bottle says, and that's just because of where I live. Uh, so for me, while it, while on the, the website it might say it gives you this much working time, in reality, it's actually a lot less than that. So it's a combination of the water absorbing and swelling the joint, as well as the water evaporating from the glue and giving me less time. Um, I don't have that problem when I use a hide glue, a polyurethane glue, an epoxy things like that. So for me personally, that's the reason why. Um, Do either of you have a different experience with that? You guys are both in more moisty areas than me.
0: That's gross. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. It's more moisty. Uh, I've I've never had any issues with with glue acting abnormally just because it is a moisty type environment. Moisty. (laughs) Sorry, I can't get past that word. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I feel like I should go take a shower now or something. Nah, just just Moist bask detail. in it. Enjoy it. Now, I've only used Extend maybe two or three times. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, obviously it wasn't my glue because if I bought a bottle of it, I would probably use it more than two or three times. Yeah, um, I used it uh, at the Stepping Stone Museum. You want to talk about a moisty environment. It was 95 degrees that day and about 95% humidity. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, obviously it worked just fine, but now I. Funny thing is, is I don't think of using hide glue for its open time. I I don't know. Uh, everybody always says that, and and even here he says you you guys mentioned using high glue because of the longer assembly time. Unless I mix it myself, like for hammer veneering or something, I don't really. I don't know. I, I don't find that it's that much different than. No? You know your PVAs or whatever. Yeah, for or me more the, the- importantly. Go on. Well, I mean, if I really want open time, I use epoxy. Like if, sure, if you have a nasty glue up that has, you know, 31 mortises to be filled, that's a call for epoxy. But I guess just in most of my glue ups, you know, I do a lot of sub assembly type stuff. I've never really felt rushed. So open time is just not really a factor. Mm-hmm. So I just don't really think about it very much.
1: OK, well, you Matt, um, I haven't found that extend gives me that much more time. Yeah. Then uh regular PVA and similar to you, Mark, like here in the winter, my shop is like between 10 and 20% humidity. Oh, it's not, so it's, it's not moisty, not moisty in the winter. Okay. And that's when mm-hmm. I do a lot of my work anyway. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't, it doesn't really make a difference. So like, Maybe 30 is 10 minutes, extends 15. It's still not really enough time. If I want really a lot of time, I'm just going to go to epoxy and not to worry about it because it's like 45 minutes. Right. And I can take my time. I can move my cameras around. I can drop stuff on the floor and knock my clamps off (laughs) by accident. Yep. And all the other stupid things that happen when you're doing a glue up and not to worry about it. Yep. Be unfazed by it.
2: And I think one of the things that happens with epoxy too, that I, I really enjoy. Is it almost because there's no water, it's not going to swell the joint and it actually acts more like a lubricant than anything Oh yeah. when you're sliding oh. your
1: joints together. I noticed that when I did the, uh, the outdoor bench, I'm like this joint was really tight before. Yeah. Whoop. Hello. Right. It, oh. Like in the best possible yeah, right. way, it
2: helps things go together. A
1: little bit of lube, you know, it really helps. <laughs> right.
0: Yeah. V- lube is a good thing in a moisty environment.
1: Mm-hmm. Agreed. Agreed. All
0: right. Wow! Did I just say that out loud? I did. You did. All right. Yeah, did. <laughs> this next there. one, next uh, uh, voice email. I was say voicemail. It's from Sean. He says, "Can someone please explain this to me? The joiner has a perfectly parallel, has perfectly parallel but offset beds to achieve its results. The hand plane has the beds in front of and behind the blade, both in the same plane. How does this work? I have a feeling Shannon will geek out with this. Matt will be somewhat perplexed, and Mark will be busy drinking grape soda. <laughs> there we go." This it's has come up before. Coffee. I feel okay. like we've... Coffee. Well, grape coffee. Ew. <laughs> <laughs> Ew. Yummy. <laughs> that just sounds gross. Um, the the key here, and certainly I know we've talked about this on the show probably 200, 300 episodes ago. So how I can't believe you don't realize that. I also think <laughs> that that, um, is it Christopher Schwartz's book, Hand Playing Essentials? I think he dedicates like a whole paragraph in the beginning. And it's one of those things where it's like, yes... Physics says it shouldn't work, but it just does. So shut up and plane. That's basically like the gist of his paragraph there. That's great. I like that. Um, the, the, the difference is the blade itself is not coplanar. So yes, the toe and the heel of the plane are coplanar, but the blade is is sticking out. It's hanging below the bed. So the way I always think of it is think of you're kind of you're almost hollowing out the surface. So you've got the toe of the plane pressed down on the on the the wood and the blade is hanging down below that geometric plane, it comes along and it pulls up a shaving behind it. And then the tail of the plane, as you transfer weight behind that, that's actually driving the blade into the wood a little bit more, a little bit more leverage. So even though Mm -hmm. the point that's doing the cutting, it's just the single point that's hanging below the rest of the geometric plane, it's kind of hollowing out the surface and leaving a flat surface behind fact of the matter is the length of the bed of the the plane is really still your reference surface and technically with the blade hanging below it, it's kind of like that high spot so the the plane can kind of rock on it but once you factor in like the small um, thickness of the shaving that we're taking and the weight that you're putting down on top of it and the compression of wood and all that fun stuff. It's kind of what Christopher Schwartz gets at. We're saying, yes, we recognize that this shouldn't work, but it works. So just <laughs> shut up and do it.
2: Well, that's got to be the big difference, right? I, I mean, like you're on a jointer, you're removing, <laughs> you know, a 32nd, a 16th, an eighth of an inch per pass. That's a little bit harder to convince a board to do um, without offsetting, you know, whereas yeah. on a hand plane, it's just such a thin and flexible, pliable piece of material that you're pulling off of there. That's the only reason I can think you can get away with it is because the sheer amount of material is very different.
0: Yeah. Well, and all of the weight (laughs) would then be on that blade, which would be the fulcrum, you know? So if you really were taking a huge amount of material off, you would probably be crumpling the edge of that blade. It just wouldn't be taking it Yeah, and maybe even warping the body of the plane, you know, especially with a longer like joiner plane where you've got that longer, um, a uh, uh, seesaw balanced on the fulcrum of the blade, you might even actually warp it around it. So it just works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just one of those magical things that works. And if somebody has a better way to explain it, um, let us know. I, I, I'd love to hear it. I should have read that uh, paragraph in Chris's book because he did kind of touch on it. But mm-hmm. as I said, it was more of a don't ask too many questions, kid.
2: <laughs> I, I would imagine though, it. if you have a power jointer and you adjust your beds perfectly parallel uh, parallel planes. And then you are able to get the cutter head just like a couple thousandths higher. And you run a piece across there. I, I kind of have a feeling that might work. It won't do much. It'll be very, very slow.
1: <laughs> it will be like, hand right. Tools. And
2: it also, yeah, it would just be like hand tools. And you'd be like, <laughs> okay, why do I have this thing powered? <laughs> this is a waste of my time, you know, but I kind of, I kind of feel like that might possibly work.
0: Well, but I mean, going to the other extreme, with hand tools, using my scrub yeah. plane and my four plane, I can take like a 16th or heavier shaving with one of those. Um, mm-hmm. but I mean, you're not really. Well, here's the other thing. I am not actually, you know what? I think this is it. <laughs> with a joiner, you're removing the entire face in one pass. With a hand plane, unless you're just planning the edge, you're not removing the entire face. You're removing part of the face. Mm-hmm. So you've got that the um, the side, the sole that flanks the blade, you know, unless you're dealing with a rabbit plane, the blade does not run from side to side. So there's that stable platform that's holding the plane in that same geometric plane that's referencing off the wood and Mm -hmm. your blade is coming in and and removing material in between. So even with a scrub plane set to take like an eighth of an inch shaving, which I've, I've done before, it's hard work, but you can do it. It's not like the plane is rocking around because it's uneven it's still settled on the surface and it's again hollowing out the section right from the middle because you, that the entire sole is in contact at the same time if your board is really out of flat the entire sole is not in contact anyway so yeah you can you can lose a few brain cells mulling this over yeah. <laughs> or you can just keep planing and recognize that it works just fine do you think we
2: could like maybe commission bridge city to make a stepped adjustable plane so the back of it you could like raise it a little bit (laughs) higher (laughs) and you could adjust it to a thousandth higher than the front toe of the plane. Let's, let's do that. Probably. I want to see I want to see if it'll work or, you know, I'll talk to Andy. Andy will do it.
0: (laughs) See, I wonder if it would work because now I'm thinking about just the body mechanics and the weight transfer in order to plane well, there is a definite weight transfer from toe to tote from toe to heel on the plane. And, and just the way we work, like if you're planing a longer board, you kind of have to walk alongside the board and keeping that weight centered. I would think if there was an offset that would actually make it even harder to do, you know, whereas with a joiner where you're taking the wood to the tool, um, you can kind of get away with that. But when you take the tool to the wood, the, yeah, the reference surface on the power joiner is the bed of the jointer reference surface of the hand plane is the sole of the hand plane, which does not. Uh, encapsulate the entire board. you know. So there's so many variables at play there that yeah, uh, Sean, you're right. I'm totally geeking out over this. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we must get to the bottom
2: of this. I'm <laughs> satisfied with this answer. Fair enough. It it, uh, it warrants further investigation. I'm
1: satisfied. <laughs> I will
2: yeah. commission a study. <laughs> yes. <laughs> why, don't,
1: why don't you ask
0: your CNC guy to figure that out? That's
1: what I'll do. Yeah.
0: After I learn his name.
1: I'll ask him that favor. <laughs> All right, I think mate. it was a a something. Yeah, something a something. A something. Speaking of names, this one's from Eric. Eric. <laughs> uh, he says I've recently had taken down a 140 year old plus uh, sugar maple. It was pretty well into the decline and unfortunately had to be felled. I've gotten quite a bit of short lumber, bowl blanks, random blocks of wood, and large and three large four foot diameter cookies that were cut to three inches thick. The tree was felled in late December, and just recently broken down. I have the cookies stickered and stacked outside my barn. At the moment, I live in Massachusetts. I haven't, I haven't applied anything to the exposed surfaces. Looking at the cookies, only about twenty to twenty-five percent of the tree was still living and carrying sap, and I'm assuming that means there'll be less checking because there is less moisture to deal with. Rather than suffer the consequences of assuming, I wanted to get your advice. What should, can I do to improve my chances of keeping these intact? No splitting or major checking. Am I just kidding myself? So, one of the things that I consider with this is that a cookie not cracking is like anti-nature. Like, they want to crack. They're designed to crack. That's just how the cookie crumbles. Oh! Oh! oh. <laughs> Because of the way that the uh, the growth rings, they'll shrink at different rates. Or they, they shrink at the same rates, but they're different lengths. So if you think of every single growth ring that's in your cookie and you want to roll it, the ones in the middle, maybe they're like two inches long. If you get to the outside, they're probably 12 feet long. And they're going to shrink by a certain percentage. Uh, so if they shrink by 5%, the one in the middle that's only a few inches long is only going to shrink a little bit. But on the outside, it's going to shrink like a lot. A lot a lot so if you have a cookie that as you've seen cracked and only has one crack in it it's typically going to be like a v-shape because towards the outside is more shrinking than towards the inside so you're really you're, you're fighting nature with this so one of the the best things you can do is lower your expectations like before you even think about things you can do to improve your chances lower your expectations and if you really want to think about this of as like i need one that's absolutely perfect. Think about it as a loss factor, like a certain amount of these, no matter what preparation you do, are going to crack and you're going to have to throw them away or do something else with them. But maybe you'll get one. So having more than you need to start with, assuming that some are going to crack is a good way to go. There's various ways to help this process out. Um, A product called Pentacryl is one that's going to go in there and replace the actual water in the cells so they can't shrink and therefore they don't crack. Uh, polyethylene glycol is another one um, alcohol baths uh, turners do that a lot with they're doing they're doing green turnings they want to finish turn quicker you can do an alcohol bath that has a lower tendency of cracking uh, slowing down the drying process so it dries more evenly so you have less stress in there so using a product like anchor seal or any kind of end grain sealer will help with that uh, keeping them in compression is another thing i've seen too so if you want to wrap a ratchet strap around the outside and cinch that thing up tight so it can't pop out. Kind of like your backing strip, or your backing uh, steel for a steam bending. Same kind of concept with that. Um, and then just hope for the best. I mean, that's really about it. Uh, these things are very hard to draw like that. And uh, they go against nature. 100% against nature.
2: Cookie, cookie.
1: <laughs> <And> they're delicious.
2: <laughs> the great, great great with <laughs> milk. Okay, anyone have anything to add to that? Because I certainly don't.
0: <laughs> no, I was good. Mm-hmm.
2: That was good. <laughs> that was I actually good. took good a enough. coffee break while uh, Matt was dealing with that question. I was low De- dealing on with it. Way <laughs> to go! Suffer- <laughs> suffering through this question. <laughs> sorry, sorry about that, Eric. I'm joking. Mm-hmm. All right, let's get to. Uh, <clears throat> I'm
1: joking in the most serious voice ever. Uh,
2: yeah, let's get to uh, Nick's question. He says mostly for Mark and Matt. Do you have any concerns about wood dust around your kids above and beyond concerns for yourself? I feel like there are certain health and safety risks that I might disregard for myself, but might think twice about for my daughter. She's only one and a half now, maybe three by the time you read this. Hey, 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 we're getting to it sooner. (laughs) So I know I have some time to think about this before she actually gets involved in any projects. But the thought crossed my mind the other day, and I thought it might be interesting to discuss. She really enjoys coming into my shop to explore and dump bins of hardware all over the floor. I know I've seen both of you with kids in the shop for at least a limited time. Do you ever worry about airborne dust? Well, here's the thing. I'm kind of paranoid about that for myself. So if I were taking shortcuts for myself, then I might be thinking, yeah, maybe I'll do a little bit extra for the kids. Maybe run the air cleaners a little longer before they come out. Uh, If they're working in the shop, make sure I have dust masks or something that actually fit their little faces. Uh, But that's not the case because I'm a little bit paranoid about this stuff. So my shop, generally speaking, if it's safe enough for me, it's going to be safe enough for my kids, so I don't do anything differently <laughs> if when they're around. Uh, if I am doing something particularly particularly dusty, uh, or if the CNC is running, I do discourage them from hanging out in the shop during those times. If I can't really control the level of dust, and I, I actually don't have dust masks for them because they don't spend extended amounts of time in the shop. So, uh, but in those those few situations, I actually discourage them from being in there for that reason. So. I mean, your kids are still pretty young, too, Matt. So I don't know if your situation is any different.
1: Not really, because they don't really like if they're in the shop, I'm not working out there. We're just kind of out there. So, yeah, I mean, they're not really like we're not like making sawdust together yet. We're not quite at that point yet. But I think if we were, then there'd be some other considerations there. Like I'd probably actually start looking to see if they make little baby face masks. (laughs) Right. Well, that's a, hard enough to find one for my own baby face. Right. So that's I'm gonna sure it's going to be hard to find one for their baby faces. too.
2: Right. Yeah. Well, and I think ultimately you can start to do things with the kids that are uh, low dust producers. I mean, as we learned in the last show, hand tool, hand tools don't make dust. So we don't have to worry about
1: it. Right. <laughs> that's right. They just make blood. Yeah. That's that a lot.
2: They <laughs> <of laughs> make blood. Don't worry. The blood, the blood won't hurt their lungs. It's fine. <laughs> that's true. So yeah, that that, that that's uh, that's all
0: all we have to say about that. Okay, uh, Mike says I'm currently in the design phase of a project that calls for a wall that is nearly 11 feet long to be covered in vertical planks of construction grade pine, aged mm-hmm. to mimic barnwood. My design calls for 1 by 6 by 8 boards with a total of 24 boards to cover the wall. My plan is to assemble the boards and position on the wall in groups using biscuits to align them and attaching the assembled groups at each wall stud using drum nails. However, the entire run will be constrained on both ends. So it's kind of like I'm building up an 11 foot panel without gluing it up. My question is, how do I factor in expansion and contraction? So I'm assuming, I mean, how I would do that is using like shiplap or tongue and groove joinery because the mm-hmm. expansion and contraction can be taken up by the joint itself but if he doesn't want that look if he wants to in other words doesn't want the necessarily the appearance of a of a joint there i still think you could get away using tongue and groove joinery um by back cutting it a little or don't worry about it and use some kind of trim on the edges so think of it like a floating floor where the entire floor is put together and then you know all the the joints whatever you use for the joints whether it's just biscuits and, and edge joints All that kind of locks it together, and the whole thing moves as one giant 11-foot panel. At Mm -hmm. which point, then you would use expansion, (laughs) leave an expansion gap around it and cover that expansion gap with a molding of some sort. And that's what shoe molding is on floors, because all hardwood floors essentially are floating. Not all of them, but good practices anyway. They're floating. (laughs) (laughs) I've seen people glue them down, um, so I can't say all hardwood floors. I still would think because of the fact that you're already planning on kind of doing this and sub assemblies, I would think that you could factor an expansion joint using, you know, shiplap or tongue and groove in each one of those panels. And then still, I would still put an expansion gap around the edge and cover that with a trim.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think it definitely calls for a redesign or a replan in some way to allow for this, because if you're you're doing this to mimic barnwood in the first place. Well, what do barns right. usually have? Exactly. Sometimes they've got expansion they go gaps, gaps. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they've got the ability for the, those panels to expand and contract. Um, and if he's talking about joining this to every stud, every 16 inches, he's going to secure that thing. I do think he's going to have a problem if he doesn't redesign this thing and think of it with movement in mind. Yeah. But I can't imagine it's going to detract from whatever look he's going for. In fact, it might reinforce the look that he's going for if he does something that's like a true ship lap uh, or, you know, tongue
0: and groove system. Right. Yeah. That's what I would do. Or, you know, if you, if you want that barn look, go with a board and batten look, you know, and you mm-hmm. cover yeah. your expansion oh, yeah. with the batten over top of it. So now you've got, because it's running vertically like board and batten. And then you've got that cool kind of three-dimensional look of the, of the board and batten. And yeah, all that is, is just covering the gaps. Right. We think it's pretty an aesthetic now, but it has a secret.
1: <laughs> <Secret>. <laughs> it's actually functional what no okay next is from uh, Greg <laughs> I'm sorry Gr- all, all names have a question mark at the end now Yep. Can't Greg is a longtime it. listener and fan I'm about to start building a split top Rubo workbench and want to get your opinions on a leg vice I've decided to go with a steel shaft and linear bearing below the screw to keep the vice from racking I often see a lot of people making their leg vise as long as their leg. What's the advantage of doing this? I was thinking of making mine only about 18 to 20 inches long. My gut says that as long as things are held tight close to the bench top, there's no need to make the leg vise so long. Thoughts? Mm-hmm. Thanks for not quitting or knitting. Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. So I can say at least in my case with my leg vice, it's as long as it is because it needs to include the crisscross hardware, mm-hmm. which is like basically all the way down to the floor. I think my vice hardware actually ends like maybe two inches above the floor, an inch above the floor or something like that. So most of it's there just to support the hardware for the leg vice. Sure.
2: And I think needs like a pretty fat mortise inside that <laughs> chop to work. So oh, you yeah. got to have a l- little bit of material at the end there to like reinforce that and border it. Yeah. yeah. So is there I'm, any functional reason for a low, uh, low leg vise outside of hardware restrictions?
0: I, I use it um, when I'm resawing because there's a, a heck of a lot of torque placed on the board from that big saw that I use. Mm-hmm. So having the leg vice actually clamping the board all the way along the leg provides just immense holding power. And actually because I, don't have a crisscross well even if you did have a crisscross that the actual hardware in my case the parallel guide acts as a stop so i will actually position the board on the other side of the vice screw and the parallel guide from where i'm sawing so that the force of the saw kind of kinks the board down up against the parallel guide it actually makes it hold stronger but mm-hmm. oh yeah I, there's been several times when i've had a longer panel and being able to the reason that the leg vise is positioned in front of the leg is now you've got full support along that entire link, so it's a massive amount of clamping power if you if you need it yeah so it's a you know stuff. minimal use case scenario certainly, but it's nice when you need it
2: well I think even if you he, if you just goes halfway down the leg or something like that. That would be a good safeguard if he doesn't want to go the full distance. I mean, the other thing is it looks kind of weird if you don't, right? Like if that thing stops about (laughs) halfway down the leg, doesn't it start to look a little, I mean, not that it counts for anything, who cares? But the idea is it kind of mimics the structure of the leg as the leg meets the top and it widens out, um, you know, at the very top of the chop and then gets narrower as it uh, goes into the leg. And it just kind of looks like it belongs. I feel like if you terminate that, like a foot up 16 inches up from the ground, It just might look a little weird.
0: Well, and you're going to lose some clamping power. I mean, because it is a lever, you know, you've got that pivot point down at the bottom where my parallel guide is and all the screw is doing is just pulling the the other part tight and against it. And the, the fixed point is that parallel guide at the bottom. So that longer, what is, what is about 34 inches long on my bench That's a nice long lever to give you an immense amount of clamping power right at the top. Whereas if it's only 18 inches long, you lose some of that lever.
2: Well, it's also interesting too. I'd like to see his design because he's describing a steel shaft and linear bearings. Right. So how, like, what is the action of the vice in this case? Like how does it pivot and how does it actually work? Because I know if you have this thing riding on a linear bearing, sometimes its actual ability to torque and, and pivot and move is restricted in a way. Um, so I'd be curious to see how well that even works for him. It's a cool idea Ooh. though. Sure. Okie dokie. Uh, got one here from Alex. He says, this may seem inconsequential in a grand scheme of woodworking, but I was wondering if pets in the shop, were This is funny. I didn't realize we, pets and kids are kind of getting the same question here. <laughs> saying, uh, if maybe if it's
0: inconsequential to you, but my pet <laughs> <laughs> is my kid. So shut up. Right. There you go. <laughs> if, uh, don't be mean, Shannon, <laughs> relax. <laughs> it's just an email. All right. If, uh, it's okay. says, His I was name is the if, same as one of my old pets, so that kind That's of works. right. If pets in the
2: shop are at any health risks other than the obvious sharp tools, I was sanding the other day, and my dog was laying down right next to the bench, and I noticed some of the dust falling on her. I always wear breathing, eye, and ear protection, but I was wondering if pets in the shop are prone to the same health risks we are. I work out of a one-car garage, and I do not have any dust collection, but I do try to open the garage door when I'm doing something that I know will be particularly dusty. Um, as, oops, I guess I'm asking, does RZ Mask make a <laughs> dog-sized version? Uh, thank you for the many years of entertainment and knowledge and keep up the awesome work. So, a couple things. The, I know we have talked about this in the past. We may have spent an extended amount of time talking about pets in the shop on a past Wood Talk episode. I don't know which one that is, um, but it, it strikes me as being a long time ago. So, let's talk about it again. I, I'm going to be a little bit uh, bullish on my opinion here. Ooh. Um Your dogs have ears and their ears are even more sensitive than ours. They've got eyeballs. They've got lungs. Anything that can hurt you can hurt your dog. And I actually, I'm going to go on the side of saying, I think it's a a form of um, some level of negligence and abuse. If you just let your dog hang out in the shop while you're running loud power tools, generating dust, and they're just sitting there breathing it in. And I know that may sound like, you know, some people are a little oversensitive to uh, the dogs. They're just pets, right? Quote unquote. Quote unquote. Uh, but I think you have a responsibility to protect your your dog from the things that they're not smart enough to realize are bad for them. So if you are protecting yourself, your dog should be protected as well. Uh, also going to say something about, you know, maybe upgrade your mask. Uh, RZ mask has great advertising, looks like a cool product, but it doesn't do as much to protect you as a real respirator does. Um, so I would, uh, definitely look into that. If you are making a lot of dust and this is something you do a lot, you might want to look for an upgrade there. Uh, you just might want to wait a little while before going to buy that mask. It might be difficult to, uh, to pick oh, yeah, up these right. days, the way things are going <laughs> at the, uh, uh, the home centers when it comes to, uh, respirators and safety masks and things like that. Um, so I don't know if you guys disagree with me. I don't mean to be, to be mean to Alex in any way, but I do think it's negligent to let an animal, just because it wants to be with you and it doesn't seem like it's not bothered by these things. Dogs are like that. You know, they want to be around human beings and some of them honestly are not smart enough to realize that they're hurting themselves at the, you know, trying to get themselves closer to you or being in your presence. And it's your responsibility to make sure that they are safe.
0: Well, I've got uh, four or five vets doctors of veterinary medicines In the hand tool school, this uh, conversation has come up in the community there a couple of times. And those guys who I would consider to be experts have spoken and said that, yes, this is something to be concerned about. Um, The biggest thing, and Mark just hit it, is the sound. Obviously, dogs have more sensitive ears than we do. So if you are running power Mm -hmm. tools, in many instances, you will actually find your dog is actually reacting. Like if I turn on the planer, Kenny wants out. It's like, no, I don't want anything to do with that. He's actually scared of it which granted, mm-hmm. he's a bit of a wimp, but still, I mean, <laughs> he, he, he doesn't be. like it because it's <laughs> melting his brain. I mean, it's actually yeah. melting my brain <laughs> if I take my hearing protection <laughs> off. Um, the dust thing is, it, it's a yes and no answer. In some instances, it can be really bad, but in other instances, dogs have a much more um, much more better <laughs> filtration system. You think about how dogs wander around with their nose on the ground, just sniffing everywhere they go. They have very, very sensitive olfactory senses and a better filtration system to get the dust and stuff out but some of the woods that we use just like humans you know can cause rashes can cause all kinds of nasal issues because of the high volumes of extractives in in those nasty jungle woods it's the exact same thing with dogs Um, skin irritation is a very very big issue um, just like with humans, if you're turning with cocoa below and you get it all over your arm, your arm's probably gonna break out in a rash. If your dog's sitting there while you're sanding and it's the same type of, of Western red cedar or cocoa below or Alaskan cedar or any high extractive wood, that can cause skin reactions, which then the dog worries and licks and turns into a hot spot and it can becomes infected. And mm. yeah. So it's it's a it's a big issue. And Mark, you're not going too far by saying negligent because several of these vets that i have in my school have said yeah don't do it folks it's bad Mm. like my dog wants to be with me but i won't let him in the shop i'm not saying go so far as to ban the dog from the shop but in my case my dog's always trying to eat the shavings like every time they fall on the ground (laughs) so i have to like wrestle him out of his mouth and Mm and escort him out of the shop so yeah i think it's 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 a very clear concern um i hate to say it because yeah my my Old retriever, Alex, used to just love to sit there and be showered in shavings. It's like he thought I was playing with him by dropping <laughs> shavings on his head. And Thank you. You're right, Thank Mark. You. He was too <laughs> stupid to do anything about it. He right. This died. is great. You know, and he started sneezing, you know, and it's like, why are you sneezing? Yeah, that's time to leave the shop, buddy.
2: Well, I mean, there's a lot of things we do in the shop that aren't loud and don't produce tons of dust. You're doing a little bit of hand tool work and the dog behaves themselves. That's fine. Doing some drawing, you know, some planning, getting set up for the day. Those are perfectly fine, you know, but as soon as you start to fire up those tools, you got to really give it a second thought.
0: Yeah, Mm -hmm. all that. So uh, this is this is a question from our newest one of our new patrons, Matt Desbarbio Desbarbaro. After Barb Brady, that's what we're going to call him, <laughs> Officer Bar Brady. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking to build seven exterior doors and storm doors, some one and three-eighths inch thick, some are one and three-quarters out of quarter Douglas fir. I won't call it vertical grain. I'm sorry.
2: I, I like that. <laughs> Got to draw the line somewhere. Thank
0: you. Thank
2: you. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Typically, I, I build my doors with drawboard, blind mortise, and tenons, but the seven doors I'm considering using a domino. You guys think dominoes are an acceptable and long lasting solution for full size doors. Should they be drawboard as well? Can I do wedge through dominoes? Jokes, of course. He jokes, but there's a lot of people now going, ooh, wedge through mm, hey, Maybe we could dominoes. do that. Should I drawboard my can. dominoes? Yeah. Yes. See what you've done, Matt? You just It's all Matt's yeah, fault. It's, it's me. Terrible. No, this <laughs> Matt. Matt Barberini. Oh. Oh, oh Barberi. <laughs> 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 so I, I, I can speak from the perspective of commercial door shops. They, uh, they use dominoes. They're not actually called dominoes cause they're not festival dominoes. They use these things called loose tenons, which is a domino essentially.
1: But yeah, that was my next question was, are they actually using the domino?
0: No. Well, although yeah. now that the domino, whatever the, the, the big brother domino, the XL, XL. seven, 5,000 dash 22,
2: Oh, stop it. It's 700. Now, now that
0: that thing is out, I mean, wasn't that why it was designed? I mean, those monster and dominoes. I mean, this is the perfect application for that. Yeah, they're big. I mean, it's big, giant, you know, long tenon that goes well into that kick rail, lock rail and into into our yeah, lock rail, kick rail, kick plate, whatever that's called. That's what it's for. So now that that big brother dominoes come out, I've seen a few of those dominoes sitting on the shelves in the door shops that I've been to. But most of the commercial shops have actual like dedicated machinery, like multi-router type machines that all they do all day long is cut mortises in the ingrain grain of, of uh, door rails. So they don't, they don't need a, you know, a multi-use type tool. They've got a tool that does nothing but that all day. But it's the same thing. It's a router bit um, you know, that moves back and forth, just like the Domino. And they have uh, a whole other machine that does nothing but make tin in stock all day long basically a router table that's permanently set to to create um well actually no it's not a router table it's a shaper because it cuts it all four sides at the same time just run stick through and out comes this perfect four rounded corner um Mm, that's awesome i want one (laughs) yeah you know but yes that would absolutely work i i would see no issue i even question whether or not you need to draw bore in the first place the the draw bore it's one of those funny things like it didn't exist before Christopher Schwarz's workbench book came out, like the original first edition blue workbench book. Like yeah. no one had heard of a drawboard before. And now everybody's draw boring every single mortise and tenon they make. And it's like, I don't know that it's really necessary. What the drawboard does is, is it really is great for chairs and for things that experience a lot of dynamic forces on them, aka leaning back in the chair after dinner, that type of thing, or just sliding the chair across the floor produces a lot of racking and shearing force on that mortise and tenon. And traditionally, a, the mortise and tenon of a chair can't be that big because of the more delicate nature of, of the chair parts. You get to a door, though. I mean, there's nothing anemic about a door. Big. It's like heavy, it's just hanging there. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, there, there is there is the cantilevered force of <laughs> the be hanging there, right? It's like just hanging there, doing nothing. Sorry, Certainly okay. as the door is hanging off his hinges, there is some cantilevered force there, but it's really not nearly as dynamic as, as you might think. And it's offset by the fact that you've got this giant tenon into a deep mortise in big heavy stock to begin with. So it's not going to hurt to draw bore the, the tenons. I just, to me, that's a total belt and suspenders thing and draw boring the domino. no. Just now. Well,
2: and, and draw boring <laughs> a loose mortise and tenon to begin with, whether it's a domino right. or otherwise, feels like. I mean, I, I, okay, it might do something, but it's it's that's something I think that really, if you're getting the benefit from it, it's got to be an integral tenon that's pulling that entire rail piece into the assembly, as opposed right. to something that's putting stress on the glue joint specifically.
0: Well, and if you're going to draw bore the domino, you have to draw bore both sides of it, right? Because one, I mean, they're not fixed. It's, well, it's, a, it's a loose I guess tenon. you could
2: you could pre-glue one in, and if you trust that glue joint wholeheartedly. Right, but, <laughs> but you see where I'm
0: going here. If you, if <laughs> totally, you trust yeah. that one side to be okay, why do you need to draw <laughs> board the other side? Because technically, a domino is the same on both sides. Like, the joint is the same on both yeah. sides. If you glue one in, and you're like, okay, that one's glued. I don't need to draw board Step back and think about that. <laughs> yeah, you need mechanical reinforcement on both sides of the joint. Right, because when you glue it into the other side, you've just created a mirror image of the same thing. So no, I don't think, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no.
1: Okay. <laughs> I, I like the draw boring just from the the uh, the assembly, oh, like yeah. from the, no the woodworker standpoint. Not, not for the actual like long-term structural integrity of the piece. Mm-hmm. Well, but as we learned assembly, this week
0: on Instagram, you like to
1: hammer on stuff. I do like the hammer on things, right. and oh, man, slamming that little peg through that joint feels so good. Oh, yeah. But if you're doing, like, like a like a door, that's pretty big. Like, you're going to need some big old clamps for that, but the beauty of the bore is you just put the pegs in and you don't have to clamp it at all. And if you're doing angled Morrison tenon, it's also nice because you don't have to worry about clamping at a weird angle. You put your peg in and it just clamps itself. Mm-hmm. So just from, like, an assembly standpoint, it's nice, but I don't really see it as being super necessary for actual structural integrity down the road. Sure. In most no, it's cases, a, it's a valid
0: point though. I, I love draw for the fact that I don't ever have to use a clamp. It's great. Yep.
1: And look, o-
2: overkill draw just,
1: bore one side of the domino.
2: Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with a little overkill, you know, if it's actually working. But I think once you go to the loose mortise and tenon, now that overkill doesn't quite make as much sense.
0: Yeah. Well, the only thing I will add to this is because Matt just started to go there by saying, you know, it's a big, it's a big joint. Well, with a bigger joint, traditionally should come a larger peg too. And larger peg that you try to drive through there, you got to be careful. I mean, you could blow that (laughs) up too. You know, I can just remember using three eighths inch pegs when draw boring, the joints on my bench, that's a honking peg to drive through an offset. And I remember like the first one I did, I couldn't tell you what the offset was, but I know that I ended up reducing the offset by at least half by the time I got to the last joint. Because I was really wailing on those pegs to get them to go around the offset. And it wasn't, fortunately, I was you know mortising six by six Rubo legs together. So you're not really going to blow that up. But if you're talking about, what did they say? One and three eighths inch thick and one and three quarter inch thick. Depending on where that draw bore hole is, how close it is to the edge, driving a three eighths inch peg through there is not going to bend very much. So your offset has got to be commensurately small in order to not crack the joint um so just just be careful there um Mm -hmm.
1: and it and little goes a long way with the offset
0: yeah exactly and on the converse if you went down to like a quarter inch peg that just might look a little silly on a a door yeah Yeah. these tiny little quarter inch pegs (laughs) sitting on the door you'd be like
1: are those are those brad nails (laughs) (laughs) anyway it's enough about that we're good with are we good on draw boring now Mm -hmm. i think we're good All right. Uh, We got one here from Dan says, I'm in the market for a cabinet saw. I listened to the most recent episode this morning, uh, build your own table where there's a brief discussion of buying used tools. My question is, what are the sources for buying used tools, particularly the larger stationary tools? I know the obvious one Craigslist and eBay, but what are, what are the other sources to search and buy used stationary tools? Uh, I mean, me personally, like besides the one you listed like Craigslist and eBay, Facebook marketplace or like those auctions, whatever the auction sites are for the industrial places or whatever. Mm -hmm. I think with those, you're probably going to find a lot of three phase equipment, which if you're not scared of that, you get some pretty good deals. Um, You start looking at like much larger, like industrial equipment that way. But if that's more your thing and you got space for it, that could be a good way to go. But I've had a lot of luck on Craigslist. Uh, That's, Probably like the most common thing I've used. What about you guys for used stuff? Who buys used stuff? <laughs> uh, never mind. Never mind, Mark. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I see
2: a lot of used stuff being posted, though. Um, look at also <laughs> local Facebook groups. So we've got a Denver local group. And a lot of times, if you're going to post something for sale, rather than going to like a generic all over the country or all over the world woodworking group, Um, you get a little bit more, obviously a local one is going to give you a little bit more penetration into people who can actually come and pick this thing up, um, because you're most likely not going to be shipping it. So, um, our local Denver group often has things for sale from people and they'll put it there first before they cast the net a little bit wider. So look for those and see if, if you've got one for your area, that might not be a a bad thing to look
0: into. Find a local cabinet shop. I can tell you, um, the, the millwork that we own, we have a room that has a bunch of old power tools in it that, you know, for whatever reason have been upgraded or changed around and they just kind of got pushed off into that room. And there's a guy there that's like, yeah, one of these days we're going to sell those or one of these days we're going to list them somewhere, but it's so out of sight out of mind that there's just a room that just keeps piling up with old tools. And Mm. that's a pretty common situation. Um, it's also a great way to buy the really big, like industrial tools. Like we, I can't, I, I don't think we've bought anything new at the millwork since I've been there because, you know, companies go out of business, companies upgrade, companies do whatever. They end up with a $85,000 molder that just sits there for a while and you end up buying it for 60,000 for a song, you know? Um, but Yeah. There's a lot of cabinet shops that have extra table saws floating around, extra mortisers, things like that, that for one reason or another works just fine. It's just not on the line anymore. And a quick little phone call, you might be surprised. You might make somebody's day because they've been meaning to get rid of it for a while. And they just, (laughs) they just been too lazy or haven't had the time to actually go and list it and deal with that. Or
2: you might get them saying, uh, what the hell are you calling me for? (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah i'm
2: trying i'm trying to make a living with my cabinet business here
0: and, and you're asking me if Philly, i have any s-
2: spare tools laying around
0: <laughs> but it's also a great place to go to get lumber too so if they're like what's scraps? wrong with you you can assi- <laughs> yeah. you can quickly shift and say well i also need some lumber yeah you know, i'm just I'm here trying scraps. to give you my money just trying to give you some of my money you say well good buy a custom
2: cabinet and we'll talk okay here we go so next one here is from lucas Last one, in fact. He says, uh, hello guys, wondering about Festool Orbital Sanders, I'm looking to invest my first Festal product. And seeing as I've been doing a lot of sanding lately with some frustrating results, I figured this might be a good investment. Looking at the ETS EC 150 slash three or one twenty-five slash three, so six inch or five inch. I build a lot of cabinets, so face frames and panels. Obviously the six-inch would be great, but would it be too big to effectively sand a one and a half inch face frame? I can see myself tapering the edges quickly if I'm not careful. Would I be missing out on something great if I opted for the cheaper 5-inch? I I can kind of go both ways. I could see why someone would justify one or the other in this case. I'm a fan of the 6-inch. I believe in getting as much real estate uh, as as possible. Um, I do sand a lot of wider panels and tabletops. And for the times that I do a face frame and might consider, oh, maybe a smaller one would be better here, I have way more times that I go, I'm glad I've got a six inch over the five inch because I'm, I'm getting more done in a shorter amount of time. Uh, and if I do have to do something narrow, you usually have multiples and you could sand those ahead of time before they're on the cabinet, but them together and you could sand, you know, three inches at a time. And, and quite honestly, you know, when you have a really nicely balanced sander like these uh, ETS or ETC sanders from Festival, when they're really well balanced, they're actually not that hard to keep balanced and as long as you're not really pushing down and putting a lot of pressure, keep it centered on the pad. um, The six inch is actually giving you more contact surface. Yeah. You've got more overhanging, but you also have more touching the wood as you're sanding. So I find the five inch just as likely to round over the crisp edges as a six inch would be. Um, But again, take a safety precaution there and, butt those two things together and this way you get a little bit more um, working area. You don't have to be as careful with that sanding. So for me, all day long, man, I'm going to go with the 6-inch over the 5-inch. What about you guys?
0: I'm with you. 6-inch. 6-inch. <clears throat> the hard pad. Exactly. There you go. Yes, yes. What Matt Hard said. pad. Yeah. Not
2: all brands have that, but in Festool's line, they absolutely do. They've got a harder pad available.
1: I like it. Because, I mean, that makes it really, really hard to round over those edges because you can't really least. rock off if it. It's really obvious you start rocking off it. Mm-hmm. You got to It's not going to mush that around. not really the, the entire
0: concern for going with a smaller pad? Is that you don't taper the edge. If you go with a hard pad, it it it's it's really hard to do. Like really hard to screw it up. Yeah, that's also really for like
1: sanding panels too. You can't end up dishing as easily. Right. So if you're trying to keep things nice and flat and smooth, it's really it's mindless. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, that's good. That's a good tip. Forgot about the.
1: Yeah. Pad sanding, softness.
2: Sanding gotcha. should be mindless. I got gotcha. you. Mindless sanding. You're right. That's true. That's when you listen to wood talk is when you're yeah. sanding.
1: <laughs> That's what I do. When I catch up and see what <clears throat> stupid thing I said last time.
2: Yeah. All right. Well, I think that just about does it for us today. I want to remind you guys that the show is brought to you by Rockler family owned since 1954. Rockler is your go-to source for high quality, innovative woodworking tools, finished supplies, hardware, lumber, and expert advice. Whether you're building a simple bookshelf, a custom desk, or new kitchen cabinets, Rockler has everything you need to make your next project a success. Visit rockler.com and use the code WOODTALK, that's all one word, and receive free shipping on most orders over
0: 39 bucks. Very nice. I like mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. Well, we've said it a couple times throughout the show, but we love your questions, obviously. This entire show was put together by you guys. Thank you for making our planning that much easier. Copy and paste made the show really easy to put together. So please send in your questions. You can go to woodtalkshow.com. There's a contact form there, or you can record a voice memo and email it to us at woodtalkshow at gmail.com. Look us up on Instagram. You can find us there at woodtalkshow or individually at Matt Cremona, Wood Whisperer, and Renaissance Woodworker. We're all there. And I've been thinking about your social homework for the week. And we covered a lot of stuff. So basically, if anything resonated with you in the show, if you've got a picture of your dog with a dust mask.
2: I was just going to say, if you didn't have an idea, I've got one in yeah. this one. People are going to like it. Just a, a pet picture, a pet in the shop, even though I discouraged yeah. it, that I didn't say don't let your dogs in the shop or your pets in the shop. Just do it at the right time. So let's see some, let's see some dogs in the shop.
0: Yeah. And if you don't have dogs, cats or cats. iguanas, yeah, the iguanas in the, the shop are acceptable. Um, llamas goldfish, goldfish is just rude Because then the dust Settles on top of the water And that's just bad um, And they start eating it But yeah I mean if, if you're an If you're an Then llamas Or You know Chickens Chickens <laughs> yeah. Sheep Various and sundry donkeys Yeah It's just, it's it's basically a nativity scene over there. So Mm -hmm. yeah, please send us pictures of your pets in the shop covered in shavings or not covered in shavings, wearing a dust mask or not wearing a dust mask or hearing protection. I actually have a photograph of my retriever, Alex, wearing safety goggles and hearing protection. I remember that one. It was for Woodworker Safety Week. Yeah, it was cute shouldn't have said that and brought that back up
2: again oh please oh, i get chills i get chills just at the mention of it <laughs> was not in may isn't it coming up that's it's april isn't it i don't know i don't know doesn't exist anymore i have no idea
0: <laughs> <laughs> regardless it is funny though post those pictures people funny. and use hashtag wood Toxic 465
2: <laughs> yeah do that Business it is stuff. funny to see some of the like companies and stuff who still do it um, and I don't know if it's like become just a thing that everyone thinks of, or no one pays attention to it anymore, but once in a while you'll see a company that sells like safety products, um, promote it as woodworker safety month. It's interesting. All right. So I think that just about does it for us. Um, you guys have yourself a wonderful woodworking week and we will catch you next time.
0: See you later. We'll catch you. <laughs> Hopefully <laughs> goodbye. You won't catch it from us, but we'll catch you later.
2: Yeah. Good Bye. luck. Stay safe. Bye-bye.